I invite you to open your Bibles and turn in them to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, we'll be looking this morning at verses 10 through 15. Acts 17, 10 through 15. So as some of you know, many of you might know, that I, I was once the headmaster of a, of a Christian school in central Pennsylvania. And one day, one of the students there came up to me and said this, Mr. Shaw, you're the best principal ever. That's, that's awesome, right? What a compliment. What a comment for that young lady to make. But there's some facts you need to know. You see, she was a first grader. And I was in my second year at the school. So I was the only principal she'd ever known. But I was the best. We all like praise. We all like to be complimented. We all like to have nice things said about us. But of course, the context of that praise, where it comes from, and the context in which it's given matters. I was the best principal she'd ever had, but I was also the only principal she'd ever had. So it does tend to limit how much, uh, you know, how good I felt about that comment. You know, this text we're about to read here in Acts 17, in some ways it feels a little bit like just one more retelling of the same story. Paul goes into a town, he preaches in the synagogue, some believe, some don't believe, eventually there's trouble in town and he has to move on to the next town. And there's a part of me that wants to look at a passage like this and say, refer back to the sermon on such and such a date, and we're going to just skip it and move on. But we do notice, as we look at the text, that Luke, in his writing, in the way he frames up these accounts, does emphasize different things. And in fact, in this particular text, he doesn't really talk at all about what Paul said. He kind of just wants us to kind of read between the lines and assume it's the same sort of sermon that he delivered, that Luke recorded in more detail back in Pisidian Antioch, that Luke had summarized in some other places. We want to, we were, we're to see that the, the point here, the reason Luke records this, is not so much in what was said, but in how it was received. And so it is a sermon that points us not to what we ought to be saying. It's not guidance so much for me as a pastor or me as an evangelist among my neighbors or my family, but rather it's guidance for me as one of the children of God. How should I listen to the word of God? So with that in mind, we're going to take a look at Acts 17, 10 through 15. I'd like to remind us that here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. That means a lot. There's a lot of consequence of that statement. But one consequence is this. If you want to know how to please God, if you want to know how to be highly regarded by God, if you want to know how to be in such a place that God would compliment you, then you must know his word. So let's hear the word now of Almighty God. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. 
Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let's pray. Spirit, we ask for your guidance in understanding your word. Make its meaning known to us. Work its truth in us. Conform us to the image of your Son through your word this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. As I said, the account here is very much like many of the others. There's a few notable differences, and we really do need to note those differences, for it is there that the heart of the message lies. And so while the events play out as I summarized a moment ago, did you notice that they didn't play out for the same reasons as they have in other places? For here, Paul and Silas are not run out of, well, actually, Paul is not run out of town so much because of the Bereans being upset about his message, but rather because the Thessalonians have come down the 45 mile journey to stir things up. Now, we saw last week that they were not open to the Word of God, they were not open to a reasoned debate, they were not open to having the scriptures explained to them that they were closed off to these things for any number of reasons. They are, in fact, so closed off that they're willing to make the two-day, overland, at least two-day, overland journey to come and hate the Word of God in a whole new place. Imagine for a moment that we were to have a, a, a guest preacher here, and you didn't like what he had to say. Now, it's one thing to walk out going, well, you know, I'm not in love in that, what that preacher had to say. But it's another thing to say, you know what? I heard he's preaching in Kansas City next week. Let's get in the car, make the two-day trip to Kansas City, and hate him there also. That's a lot of hatred for the Word of God. And the Thessalonians have gone to great lengths to stir up trouble in Berea. So one of the things we have to note in the differences in the way the story is told is that there's a difference in the response. The Bereans are responding differently to the word of God than many of the other cities do. And then we see also the other difference in the comment that Luke makes, that the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to make. These Jews were more noble than the others. What a compliment. What an amazing thing for God to say about these people. They were noble. They were high-minded. They, they, they thought and, and, and acted as people who were, had a top-notch education, who were well-born and well-raised. They had been well-guided. They were noble. And who among us would not want God to say that of us. Don't you hope that God will compliment you someday in that manner? Isn't it your desire that the Almighty would say of you that you were noble? I've got to imagine that everybody would want to have that said of them. 
I'm going to guess that even atheists would go so far as to say, well, I don't think there's a God, but if there is one, I want him to say nice things about me. Everybody would want God to make this declaration. And think about it. I said a moment ago that this young lady in the school, she said I was the best principal ever, but she wasn't exactly in a position to, to make that judgment with a whole lot of authority. But look where this judgment's coming from. Imagine for a moment that you, you bake something or you sow something or you raise an animal and you take it to the state fair. And you win best in show. You get that big ribbon, the big ring at the top, and the big the things hanging off the bottom. It's that biggest ribbon given out. Best in show. Well, now all of a sudden, you're not, you know, it's not like me, the only principal she'd ever know. No, there are a lot of other pies there. There are a lot of other cows there. There are a lot of other uh, uh, sewing, you know, crafts there. And these judges are not limited in their knowledge. No, these are experts in their field. And they say, you've won the best in show. That is noteworthy praise. Now imagine it's the judge of all the universe. The one who stands over all things, above all things, beyond all things. And he steps in and says, as the Holy Spirit has done right here, you are noble. You are high-minded, clear-thinking. You're behaving in a right and righteous and appropriate way. Who among us would not want God to say that of us? And so with that said, let's look at some of the application of the text. Let's look at what they did for which God complimented them. And think about how that might be incorporated in our lives, how we might imitate and mimic these Bereans. And the title of our sermon this morning is On Being a Better Berean. On Being a Better Berean. How can we be more like these people? How can we live out our lives in such a way that God might one day say this of us? Let's take a look at it. We're going to look at six things. We're going to break them into two groups of three. The first group of three are going to come straight out of the text. The words that I'm going to use are the words found right there on the page of the scripture. The other three are going to be a little more subtle, but they're clearly there. So three things that are playing right directly off the page, three things that are there, but we've got to look a little more to, to see them. Let's take a look at these six practical things uh, uh, that come out of this text and how we might be better Bereans. First of all, we see there in verse 11, they receive the word of God with all eagerness. Do you and I receive the word of God with eagerness? Do we look forward to hearing a sermon? Think about that. There is an old joke that a sermon is something you would travel around the world to deliver but wouldn't walk across the street to hear. And I think a lot of us feel that way about the Word of God being delivered to us. They received it with eagerness. When Paul and Silas come into the synagogue and say, We know the Messiah. You've been waiting for him. We've met him. I know him. I, Paul, have seen him. Let me tell you about 
him. And let me explain to you. Notice they didn't just receive Jesus with all eagerness. They received the word. So presumably, Paul is doing here what he did in Thessalonica. He's reasoning with them, proving to them from the scriptures that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And they sit up and say, we want to hear this. They receive the word with all eagerness. Do we do that? Do we prepare to receive the word with eagerness? Do we go to bed at a reasonable time on Saturday so we can actually stay awake on Sunday. When there's a sermon series and we're marching through the text, we can kind of figure out what the next text is going to be. Do we read ahead so that we're ready for that sermon? You know, when I was in grad school was the first time I actually became a student. I kind of faked my way through elementary and middle school and high school. I kind of did a few student-like things in undergrad, but when I got to graduate school, I became a real student. And one of the things I did was actually read the text before, well, I actually read the text. That by itself is amazing. But I read my textbook before going to class. And I would take notes in blue pen every other line in my notebook. Then I would sit in the lecture with a red pen, and whatever the prof said that was different from what the book said, or was, where the prof emphasized something, I used my red pen to fill in the lectured notes. My grades skyrocketed. My understanding of the, of the concepts went through the roof. I got so much more out of the lecture. I was able to ask better questions. I was able to think about applications. I was able, all because I went to class with an eagerness to hear it. Also, when we listen to sermons with eagerness, are we eager to hear what it has to say to us? It's common. It's common to walk out of a sermon and think to yourself, boy, I wish so-and-so had heard that. Wow, does Jane Smith really need to hear that sermon? Wow, would John Doe benefit from that sermon? But do we with eagerness say, what was it saying to me? What am I supposed to hear from that sermon? How do I apply this in my life? And when it says that they, they receive the word with all eagerness, it's not just that we get this one sermon on Sunday mornings. Do we pursue the word of God in other aspects, in other areas of our lives? Are we reading the Bible on a regular basis? Are we listening to uh, biblical-based preaching and teaching in our cars, when we're out for a run, when we're walking the, walking the dog? Are we looking for times to do this? Do at least a few of our books that we read for entertainment take up subjects of the Word of God and challenge us on them? You know, I've been frustrating of late because there's not been a lot of television content my favorite shows have all been interrupted. There's, you know, the next episode didn't get produced because of the COVID shutdown. My favorite sporting events, none of them are happening. And I sit in front of the TV frustrated because I can't find anything to watch, and I just end up watching a rerun that I've seen 1,700 times. And it crossed my mind as I was preparing this sermon, gee, I wonder if maybe God is trying to tell me there's something else I can do with my time. Maybe, just maybe. There's something else I could be doing with my time right now. They receive the word of God with 
all eagerness. Do we do that? Do we check in on it? It's amazing how many of us will check our phones. Boy, every little ding, got to pick it up and see what happened. What tweet came through? What email did I just get? What text was that? What Facebook message? Why? Because we think there's going to be something wonderful there. We don't want to miss what's there. Do we check God's word with that kind of enthusiasm? With that kind of eagerness? They receive the word with all eagerness. Examining the scriptures, it says there in verse 11. Examining the scriptures. That word examining is, is got a legal connotations. It's kind of like what a lawyer does to a witness in a trial situation. Probe them, ask them questions. What do you remember about this day? What did you see on this occasion? What, do you, you know, what happened over here? It's, a, it's that, that idea of going at it with an intensity as to draw out the truth. In other words, the Bereans didn't just read the scriptures in a casual way. They dug into them. They asked questions of the scriptures. They said, what does it mean that this is so? Oh, word of God, tell me more about this subject. They poured themselves into it. They examined it. They studied it. Now, that can take some work. But think about all the things that we readily work at. We'll spend a lot of money on, on uh, golf lessons, instructional videos for our favorite hobby. We'll spend all kinds of time pouring over recipes and cooking shows so that we can come up with the next great meal for our family. Do we examine the Word of God with that sort of intensity? with that sort of focus, with that sort of purpose, with that sort of drive? Are we willing to put the work into the Word of God? Why is it that we understand that in every other aspect of our lives, what we get out of it comes from what we put into it, but when it comes to the Bible, we just think it should happen kind of just by osmosis? Five minutes of casual reading every so often, and that should be enough for the Word of God to permeate my life. It's an interesting thing. I, I shared with you last week, one of, the, one of the challenges of being a pastor and being in the Word on a, on a routine basis and having the time, I have time that you guys don't have, and I understand that. I can spend more time studying the Word than, than you can because of my uh, vocation. But one of the consequences of that is when I actually put the study in, how much more I get out of it. How much more I get out of it. Not how much more I have to give to you. Not how much more I can say, but how much more I get out of it. You will find that you benefit more from God's word when you examine it. Study it. Pour over it. Ask it the hard questions like a lawyer in court. And they did so daily. They received the Word of God with all eagerness. They examined the Scriptures, and they did so daily. That's our third point. There was a routine to this. There was a frequency to this. There was a, 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 a regular returning to the Word of God. It was not just 
that they did this occasionally. Now, I don't know if daily meant literally every single day without ever missing. I understand, and, and God's grace understands that there are realities to life. There are days when, because of whatever happens, the, the car doesn't start that morning, and so now you're running late to work, and now you have to stay late. When you get home, there's this problem. And you, that's fine. You're not going to impress God by, by your rigid routine of having exactly the same quiet time every day. But God does say of these Bereans that they were noble, and one of the things we see about them is they were in the Word of God on a regular basis, a daily basis. Our New Testament reading was the account of the, the, sca- the, the sower scattering the seed. The seed is the Word of God. Jesus goes on. We didn't have the, uh, I, I didn't ask Bill to read the whole thing, but later Jesus circles back around and explains the parable. And the, the seed was the Word of God, and it's scattered over these different terrains, and it's just scattered liberally. It's just scattered everywhere. You know, we don't try to figure out who's going to be able to grow the the, the seed of the Word of God. We we just scatter it. But it fell among the thorns was one of the things there. When Jesus explains that, what he explains is that the Word shoots up, but then it's choked off by the daily things of life. That's part of what we see going on here with the Bereans. They're not letting the daily routine of life get in the way of the Word of God, but rather they are daily turning to God's Word. You've heard the expression that too often the good can be the enemy of the great. Good, important things in our lives, going to work, loving our families, uh, mowing our grass, painting our shutters, these are all good, godly, wonderful things to do. But when they get in the way, They become the thorns and thistles that choke out the growth of the Word of God. The Bereans were there daily. Part of their everyday life was making sure that everyday life did not choke out God's Word. So we see three very applicable things that come right out of the words that are used there. There was an eagerness for the Word of God. Are we eager to hear God's Word in our lives? There was an examination of the scriptures, not a mere reading, but an in-depth study of the scriptures. And there was a daily component. They did not allow life to conquer the word of God, but rather they made sure that the word of God was a part of their everyday life. There are three things I think we ought to see that are a little below the surface, but I think you'll see they're clearly there. Three practical applications of this. Three ways that God, for three reasons for which God declares these men and women to be noble. One, they examine the scriptures for themselves. Did you catch that examination implies that they were doing this for themselves? Not just by themselves, but also for themselves, that they might benefit from it. The Bereans actually believed that on their own, they could get something of value out of the Word of God. I think many of us are intimidated by that prospect. We stand before God's Word and we think to ourselves, well, there's so much debate about what it means, and there's so much back and forth, and these, this group believes this, and this group believes that, and you know, there's you know, agreement. How can, I, how can little old me possibly get anything out of it? 
I think that's a failure to understand how the flesh and how the enemy have muddied the waters. Just because there is great debate over the Word of God does not mean that there cannot be truth gleaned from it. And in fact, we need to pour over it for ourselves. We need to believe that we can get something out of it. When I taught high school, one of the things that was really interesting to me was particularly like in the math classes where there's that process of just repeating the, the exercise over and over and over again until you eventually learn how to do it. And students, I, I think they believe that we teachers had this, you know, secret method of just understanding everything and we refused to share it with them. We were telling them they had to do homework, but, you know, we, we just, because we, we, we were holding back the real way to understand. And I had a neat experience in that I was teaching a, a math class at the high school level while I was taking some advanced math courses at the university. And one day during my off period, I was doing my homework for my, my college course, and a couple of students came in early for the next class, and, hey, Mr. Shaw, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing homework. They're like, what do you mean you're doing homework? And they looked, and they said, oh, when do you have to turn this in? And I said, I don't have to turn this in. It's not due. And they're like, why are you doing it? I'm like, because I want to understand the subject matter. I want to work at it, and I believe that I can get it. And it was a revolutionary moment, actually, in my teaching career. It was the first time my students kind of looked at me and went, oh, that's how you understand it? Yes. And I think sometimes we have that same tendency in the church. The pastor, the Sunday school teacher, the elders, they have a secret formula for understanding the Bible that I just don't have, so I can't possibly jump into it. No, we don't. And in fact, the vast majority of the times that I look at a scripture the first time, I am like you. What is this saying? When I was at my previous church, I was the associate pastor, so I preached far less often. But one of the things, one of the deals I had with my boss was that we kind of, the next text up, if he was going to be away or out of the pulpit for any reason, and it was my turn to preach, the next text up. Whatever it is, that's what I'm going to preach. I'm not going to cherry-pick my favorite passages. I want to keep the sermon series moving forward. I want to keep the church. Next text up. And there would be times he'd say, okay, I'm going to be gone on such and such a date. The text is going to be this. And I would look at it and going, I can't get a sermon out of that. I can't get three minutes out of that. There's nothing there. Those were always the sermons <laughs> that went 20 minutes long. <laughs> because in the end, there was so much there. The Bereans believed that they could get something out of the Bible, and so they studied it for themselves. It's not just that they examined it. They examined it for their own benefit, with a confidence that they could draw something out of it. Oh, to be sure... It is wise to check what you think you have found against what others have said about the passage so that you don't run it off the rails with some kooky interpretation. Always go and look what others have had to say about this passage. But don't believe that you can't get something from it. The Bereans believed that they could study the scriptures for themselves. 
And the Bereans looked to the scriptures as the final authority. Do you catch how this plays out? What does the say there in verse uh, 12? So in verse 11, we see their attitude towards scriptures. Then look at verse 12. Many of them, many of them therefore, believed. As a consequence of their study, as a consequence of what the, the, their attitude towards Scripture, they believed it. In other words, they went to the Scriptures with the understanding that it's the final authority. It's the absolute. It's the last call. It's the judge. And if what Paul is saying is true, if I go back to the scriptures and find it there, then I have to submit to it. I have to treat it as authoritative in my life. You know, we should not accept things lightly. We ought not to take what is said to us and accept it as truth just because we like the way it was said to us. Or we like the person who said it to us. Or we like the show we heard it on. Or we like the song we heard it in. All these things need to be carried back to the scriptures and evaluated against the, the scriptures. And if what was said is found there in the scriptures, then yes, the scriptures are the final authority. We accept it. But if what is said is not found there, we must be careful of this. Just because someone slaps a Bible verse on it doesn't make it scriptural. And there are a great many things in this world that are untrue. That we swallow because somebody labeled it as biblical. We must be careful. On the flip side, though, we can't reject what is said simply because we don't like it or we don't like the person who delivered it, or we don't like the source that it came from. When the hard doctrines come that we don't like, that we don't want to hear, that seem to rub us the wrong way, we need to take those also to the Scriptures. You know, it's interesting here, we don't actually know why the Bereans went to the Scriptures. We don't know what their default assumption was. We don't know if some of them were going, clearly, Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Oh, but we should go check and make sure. Or maybe they were saying, ah, this can't be. This just can't be. What this guy is saying, what this clown is saying about Jesus of Nazareth, this can't possibly be true. Either way, they took it to the scriptures. You know, one of the things that I would encourage you to do, whether you are here at Shore Harvest, uh, listening to a, a radio preacher, visiting another church, someday attending another church perhaps, have your word, have the, your Bible open during the sermon. You ever notice now, we're not doing bulletins right now because of the whole handing things out and the COVID. Th but you remember when we had bulletins? You remember that we would print the Old Testament reading and the New Testament reading in the bulletin? But we didn't print the sermon text in the bulletin. You ever notice that? There's a simple reason for it. As elders, we discussed it once upon a time and we came to this conclusion. When it comes to the sermon text... You need to have your Bible open. You need to be sure that what I'm saying is not being yanked out of context. You need to be sure that I'm not twisting it to make it into something it isn't. What did our Old Testament readings say? You know, that it's a, it's a well-known verse. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. But the verses before, they're damning. For what do they say? 
All flesh is like grass. Surely all men are like the flowers of the field. Your pastor is a fading flower at best on his best days. But the word of God stands forever. Hold me to it. Have it open before you. Is he pulling it out of context? Is he twisting it into something it should not be? It is the final authority. Not me. It is what decides truth. So the Bereans examined the scriptures for themselves. They then accepted it as the final authority. And the third point I want to make here is that they humbled themselves before the word of God. They humbled themselves before the scriptures. Did you catch what is said there? Many of them, verse 12, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Now, this is not the first time we've seen Luke make a point out of the social standing of the believers. So what's going on here? Does Luke not care about the poor? Does Luke not care about the outcast of society? Does Luke regard them as, you know, who, well, if the, if the homeless believer don't believe, we don't care. Who cares? What matters in the church is that these high-standing people believe. No. Luke is writing to most excellent Theophilus. He's writing to one of high standing. And Luke writes to most excellent Theophilus with the words of Jesus ringing in the back of his head, playing over. He re- he's already written his gospel. He knows what Jesus says about wealthy people. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because when you are of high position, when you are a place of power, when you have influence, you have a tendency to think you're right all the time about everything. And if salvation comes by believing and repenting, Luke is trying to make the point to Theophilus and to all of us who are blessed to be in high earthly positions. You must ultimately submit to this. It's not enough to hear it with eagerness. It's not enough to examine it and study it. It's not enough to apply it to yourself. It is not enough to to hold it as authoritative. Ultimately, you have to humble yourself before it. You have to repent. You have to turn away from who you were and what you were doing and line yourself up with it. You can't hope, Theophilus, you can't hope, Shore Harvest, in your position, in your status, in your upper middle class or wealthy place in this world. And these men and women, Luke wants to point out to Theophilus and to you and to me, ultimately they are deemed noble in the sight of Almighty God because they bowed before his word. They took it as authoritative in their lives, and they had to humble themselves before it. We must receive the word of God with eagerness, like the Bereans did. We must examine it, study it, work at it, like the Bereans did. We must do this routinely, daily, like the Bereans did. 
We must do it for ourselves as the Bereans did. We must turn to it as the final authority, not accepting what Paul or anyone else says to us without pouring over the scriptures like the Bereans did. But none of that matters if we don't come humbly under its oversight like these Bereans did. God's word is a two-edged sword, sharp enough to judge our innermost being, to judge us, to divide that which is sin from that which is righteousness and help us shed the sin. It's the living and active word of God. And it must always be the authority in our lives, individually, in our families, here at our church. That is the only way God will ever deem us to be noble, to be high-minded, to be worthy of his compliment. Let's pray. Lord, we need to be reminded of this routinely. Drag us before this text on a regular basis. Pull this text back to our mind all the time, Lord, so that we will pursue your word in a Berean-like manner. But more than that, so that we will humble ourselves before it. So that when it convicts us of sin, we will repent. When it uh, charges us with something to do, we will obey. Lord, give us the nobility of the Bereans so that we will be a people of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.